All right, good morning. Well, my name is Brock Ashley, and thankful again to be joining you this week. Uh, as Pastor Mike is now back from seminary. But today, we are going to be covering the second part of a two-part series that we started uh, last week as we looked at the land of the free. And when we were looking at the land of the free, the freedom that we talked about was from the book of Exodus, the 17th chapter, and in particular, it was freedom from the flesh, and the flesh that really holds us back and, and tries to keep us down. And what we realized as we read through that is that in that, that Amalek, the Amalekites that they fought with, represent in Bible typology a type of the flesh. And what the Lord says in Exodus chapter 17, verse 16, is that he will make war with Amalek from generation to generation. So we can understand from that parallel that what he's saying is that God will make war against our flesh from generation to generation in order to ultimately deliver us from this bondage, this, these things that pull at us and drag at us. But today, oh, today the message title is going to be The Home of the Brave. And as we have Memorial Day coming upon us, and we think about the veterans who have uh, served in the past, those who have put their life on the line for us, and those that are even out there today that are continuing to put their life on the line, we want to talk about is bravery. That's really what we want to, what we want to bring together. And we're so thankful uh, for those guys and gals that have done that, that we can sit in a place like this on a beautiful Sunday morning and we can worship freely, right? We can open our Bibles and we don't have to have the fear of persecution. So we're so very grateful on this Memorial Day weekend. So grateful are we that we do what all Americans are going to do when we're grateful and thankful for something, we cook meat, right? Nothing says thank you anymore than barbecuing. And Americans so love to cook meat as a way of thanks is that here's some fun Memorial Day facts, that on Memorial Day, Americans will consume 818 hot dogs every second. That's right. Think about that for a minute. So that totals up to over a 24-hour period, some 71 million hot dogs are going to be taken down and consumed by Americans. Truly amazing. So if you're a manly man like me, big tough guy, uh, you could probably put away four or five hot dogs at any given barbecue, right? You feel pretty good about that, especially if you're buying the meat. I'll gladly come over and eat all you want to put in front of me. But for us as manly men, there is a guy that we can look up to, uh, an uncommon hero, his name is Joey Chestnut. He's the hero of the hot dog, as I put up there. The prince of the Pronto Pup, the captain of the Coney, the wizard of the Wiener Schnitzel. I probably should have stopped at prince of the Pronto. But anyway, Joey Chestnut, this uncommon hero, holds the world record for the most hot dogs consumed at Nathan's annual hot dog eating contest. That last year, he put down 72 hot dogs and bun in a record 10 minutes, beating his old record of 69 hot dogs and buns from the previous year to claim his 10th mustard belt title. Listen, folks, this is real information. I'm not making any of this up. All this is facts taken from hotdogs.org. Okay, so go check that out. That really is a website. And, but what you would look at, and you would see Joey Chestnut, is you would see a guy that really isn't all that impressive. At six feet, one inches tall, 200 pounds, he looks very average. And yet, he has an uncommon, unlikely hero, an unlikely ability to down a whole bunch of hot dogs. 
So what we're going to hope to do is redeem this entire message from that as we move into the Bible. Let's look at the Word of God instead. And today, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 2. As we look at another uncommon hero, and that is none other than a lady named Rahab. So as you make your way to the second chapter of Joshua, Rahab is going to present to us another type. Like I said, last week we looked at Amalek being a type of the flesh. What we can draw from the life of Rahab as we read this story, what I want you to have in the back of your mind, is that Rahab also presents a type of the New Testament believer, or a type of the church. Right? She's a Gentile. She uh, has a unique profession we're going to talk about. And we see her transition from that into uh, salvation. We'll see this type of New Testament believer play out. But as we look at her being this beautiful type, she's also going to present a unique problem that we're going to look at at the end of things today. So let's begin with Joshua chapter 2 verse 1, and we're going to read the entire chapter. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab. And lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come out to search all the country. Then the woman, being Rahab, verse 4, took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But, in parentheses, she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. In verse 7, And then the men pursued them by the road to, to the Jordan to the fords. And as soon as they as soon as those who pursued them had gone out, they shut the gate. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and the terror of you has fallen on us, and all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have learned, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites, who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. In verse 11, And as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did they remain any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on the earth. Now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I have shown you kindness, that you also show me kindness to my father's house and give me a true token. And spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. Verse 14. So the men answered her, Our lives for yours. If none of you tell this business of ours, it shall be that when the Lord has given us the land, that we will deal kindly and truly with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was on the city wall, and she dwelt on the wall. And she said to them, Go to the mountain, lest the pursuers meet you. Hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Afterward, you may go your way. So the men said to her, We will be blameless of this oath of yours, which you have made us swear, unless when we come to the land, you bind this line of scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. 
And unless you bring your father, your mother, your brothers, and all your father's household to your home, so it shall be that whoever goes outside the doors of your house into the street, that his blood shall be on his own head, and we will be guiltless. And whoever is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head, if a hand is laid on him. And if you tell this business of ours, then we will be free from the oath which you made us swear. And she said to them, According to your words, so be it. And she sent them away, and they departed. And she bound the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the mountain and stayed there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers sought them all along the way, but they did not find them. So the two men returned, descended from the mountain, and crossed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun, and told him all that had befallen them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has delivered all the land into our hands, for indeed all the inhabitants of the country are faint-hearted because of us. So we made it. There we go. The story of Rahab as she takes on these two young spies from the nation of Israel. Now, some things I want to point out about Rahab as she transitions from harlot to hero is first of all in verse 9. We see her and she says, I know that the Lord has given you the land. Now, anytime we see in our Bible the word Lord, and it's spelled in all caps, that's a specific name for the Lord. That's the covenant name of Yahweh or Jehovah. So what we can learn about Rahab here is she wasn't talking about a God. She was talking about the God, specifically referring to Yahweh. She had knowledge of the God of Israel. So she knows of him, and as I put here on the screen, that knowing is the beginning of believing. So as she knows about him, this starts this process of belief. And then in verse 21, we see this transition from knowledge to belief taking place. In verse 21, she said, And according to your words, so be it. And this belief that takes place that these things are going to happen just the way these guys spelled it out. And I, I want to point out in Luke chapter 1, this is a, an interesting statement that Rahab makes, and it's connected words of another lady in our Bible, a lady by the name of Mary, as she has this plan laid out for her about how her life is going to go and what's going to take place with her birth of her child, that being Jesus, Mary says this at the end of the angel explaining these things to her in verse 38 of Luke chapter 1. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. So if we flip back there to Joshua chapter 2, what did Rahab say? In verse 21, according to your words, so be it. So both of these ladies exhibit unbelievable faith based on what they heard, right? No other knowledge, just I've heard these things and I believe. In Romans chapter 10, verse 17, what Paul writes there, when it comes to hearing, is he says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Rahab had heard these things about God. She wasn't at the Red Sea. She didn't see dry ground in the nation crossover. She wasn't at the battle between Og and Sihon, the Amorites. But she heard these things and she believed. She not only believed, but she believed specifically in chapter 2, verse 11, that the Lord your God, He is God in heaven above and on the earth. So she had an understanding of who this God was. He is the God, the man. And she begins to believe in him. Now this fear that's cast down upon all the people, 
This is a fear that Moses talked about in Exodus chapter 15. And for the sake of time, I won't read that, but it's, it's a, a poem or a song that Moses writes, and he talks about this fear that's going to come down upon people. And the situation with Rahab is she didn't let this fear just stop her right there. But instead, like what is uh, I put up here on the screen in Proverbs chapter 9, verse 10, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So this fear for her was the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. So she begins to develop in this fear, and it begins to become a wisdom and understanding for her. And a change takes place. So what kind of change? Let's look at that. We see this conversion of Rahab. Even with limited knowledge that of the Lord, it changes Rahab. And how do we know this? We know this, first of all, let's talk about the facts. The fact is, she was a prostitute. I read a lot of Bible commentators that try to make her into an innkeeper and, and try to clean this story up. It, you can't clean this up. She's a harlot. It says it in the Old Testament. It says it clearly in the New Testament. That's what she was. And yet, the question I put up here is, why then does she have flax on the roof? In verse 6, in parentheses, as she's hiding these two men, it says she's hidden them with stalks of flax. Well, flax was used in the process of making garments, of making clothes or linens. So Rahab here, it looks like to us, has actually started a career change. She's looking to change things a little bit. You see internally that even before she meets these two young men, that the Lord is working on her heart. And interestingly enough, in Proverbs 31, a passage that's familiar to a lot of you as we look at uh, this section talking about a virtuous wife, but in Proverbs 31, 13, this is what's uh, right here in the scriptures, is in describing the virtuous, she seeks wool and flax and willingly works with her hands. So we see this change from, for her from villain to virtuous that she's looking to do something to change her career, not for money. There's a reason that prostitution is the oldest business in the history of the world, because you can make money doing it. She was instead convicted about what was going on, and she was looking to make a change. And that's how our relationship goes with the Lord, too. Like, as, as we come to a knowledge of Him, things begin to change in our lives. The old stuff starts to drop off, Sometimes inexplicably. Sometimes we pray hard. We want these things to fall off, and they don't. Sometimes they just fall off automatically. I had a, a lunch meeting or a breakfast meeting with a friend of mine uh, earlier this week. Actually, we met in an airport because it was how we could get connected. And a few months ago, this gentleman, uh, to, when I talked to him, he decided to commit his life to the Lord. Very successful business guy. And as I'm talking to him about this and his decision a few months back, he said, you know, I'm, I've determined I'm going to follow after the Lord. But just so you know, I'm not going to stop drinking beer. I said, okay, that seems like a random thing to throw out there to me. But listen, man, if you want to you wanna follow the Lord, that's all I'm worried about. All the rest of this stuff, that's between you and him. So as we continue our conversation some several months now later, He's talking to me about the things that God's doing in his life. We're having a conversation about tithing and about his church, and he's, he's telling me about a homeless shelter that he volunteers at and a food pantry where he's stocking shelves. And, and as we're talking about these awesome things that God's doing, he says, you know, I'm still not going to stop drinking beer, right? <laughs> like, I, I get it, man. I get it. You're not going to. But that's okay because that's between you 
and the Lord. You guys work that out. He'll, he'll whip that out of you whenever he's ready. But that's not for me to look at. And I'm not trying to advocate that, but this is the way that it works for us. It's a transition. It's a relationship that has to evolve over time. I'm thankful that my friend has decided to follow after the Lord, right? I'm not worried about the other stuff because he and God will work that out. So the thing for Rahab that really connects her from uh, villainous to virtuous is, in fact, this scarlet thread. And what does this thread represent? This thread represents faith. She had to have the faith to lower the thread down to save these men. And then she had to have the faith to leave the thread out there. This is a red rope hanging out her window. Somebody's going to notice, right? It's like leaving your Christmas lights up all year long. Well, that, that's probably okay. You can leave your Christmas lights up if you want. But you understand, this is something that people are going to ask her questions about. This doesn't just go by without anybody asking. So the faith of Rahab is put right out there for all to see. And Rahab keeps some interesting company, too. If you turn to the book of James, get all the way to the right in your Bible, in chapter 2, in verse 23, we're going to see the company that Rahab keeps in the New Testament. In verse 23 of chapter 2, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? So for Rahab, her faith played out with her actions, right? She extends this rope. She doesn't just have belief and stop it there, but instead it causes her to take action and to save these two young men. But she keeps the company with the very father of the faith as we look at this. She's right there in line with Abraham. And I put this uh, up on the screen, that the same faith that saved the Jew also saved the Gentile. The same scarlet thread that's interlaced throughout the Bible, throughout scriptures, that ties it all together, saves us and them. It lowered down the Jews out of the window so these two young men could have salvation and it's also the thing that's used to identify Rahab and her family so she could receive salvation. It's the scarlet thread that runs throughout. And the same thing's true here. The same faith that saved Abraham saved Rahab. All right, let's move on then. And let's talk about the problem we have with the story, right? This is the part you're all waiting on. What is the issue then with Rahab as she's compared to the church? Well, her bravery is unquestioned. We look at what she did. She stood up for herself. You cannot uh, look at that and not admit that this is the case. But what about her methods? Because the fact of the matter is, she was a liar. Liar, liar, pants on fire. This is Rahab. If you went to Sunday school with me at the Baptist church, we would have said, Revelation, Revelation 21.8, liars go to hell, burn, burn, burn. Right? You can look that up. This is where she came from, right? She lied, which has to be considered hypocritical. But how then does the Bible look at Rahab? What does God have to say about her? Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 11. If you're still in James, go a little bit to the left. You see Hebrews chapter 11, which is known in our New Testament as the Hall of Faith. 
So the famous people of old, the Old Testament, this is where they reside, where we can learn from them. And it says in verse 31 that by faith the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she received the spies with peace. So what does it say about her method that she went about to save these two young men? The lie she told. She didn't tell just a little tiny white lie. She told a big old whopper of a lie. She gave the old, they went that away like Bugs Bunny. The New Testament says absolutely nothing. It doesn't bring it up. It's not even here in the scripture at all. So what then takes place for Rahab after this? What does her life look like after uh, Jericho, the walls fall, and uh, her family is saved? What then takes place to her? Let's flip just a little bit farther to the left. Look at Matthew chapter 1 with me. It's some of your favorite reading, and that is a genealogy. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 5. And Salmon begat Boaz by Rahab. So at some point in time, after the walls fell and her family was saved, Rahab meets a guy named Salmon. I know what you're thinking. Sounds a little fishy. That's all, that's all I could come up with. I'm sorry. But they begot, they have a son named Boaz. Now Boaz is an interesting character because he ends up falling in love with and marrying a woman named Ruth, who... Uh, who was also a Gentile woman, a Moabite. And those two have a son named Obed, who then has a son named Jesse, who has a son named David. So how does God feel about Rahab? How does he uh, look upon her? Well, he looks upon her kindly enough that he weaves her into the very genealogy of King David. Not to stop there, he weaves her into the genealogy of Jesus Christ. So she was a great, great, however many greats you want to lump on there, 15, I think, 16, you can count, grandmother to Jesus. It's an amazing story. And Jesus has similar interactions with a lady who also had a, a sordid background. If we look at John chapter 4, we see Jesus and his interaction with the woman at the well, this Samaritan woman. As he sits down there in Samaria, and this young lady comes out to get water from the well, and Jesus talks to her about salvation. He lays out there for her that he is, in fact, the living waters. But then he asks her a question. He tells her, actually gives her a command. He tells her to go back and talk to her husband. And what does she say? Well, I don't actually have a husband. And Jesus says, you know what? You're right. You don't. In fact, you've had five. And the guy you're living with, he's not your husband either. But then he doesn't stop there. He goes on to talk to this woman and turns her into an evangelist. And she's able to go around this entire community and evangelize the very name of Jesus Christ. See, he's not interested in our past. He's not interested in, in bringing these things up over and over again so we can be beaten down about these things. But what then do we make of Rahab in this question of, is she a hypocrite? And the answer I would have for you is yes, she is. She is both a hero and a hypocrite. And you know what else? Uh, this guy sitting right here, hypocrite too. There's a lot of hypocrites probably in this room if I had to guess. But you know, I, I wanted to put up here on the screen though some people that aren't hypocrites. Hugh Hefner, not a hypocrite. He was determined to build an empire and sell one thing, and that is sex. And he did it better than anybody. Never a hypocrite, never denied what he was out to do. 
To an even further extreme, a guy that was a hypocrite is Adolf Hitler. He made it very clear he wanted to destroy the Jews and rule the world. And that's what he set out to do. Not a hypocrite. Because the thing is, in order for you to be a hypocrite, it means you have to actually have some kind of moral standard in the first place. And that's the problem we have as a church is people want to throw stones. I've been that guy throwing stones at the church. It's full of hypocrites. You know what? You're right. It is full of hypocrites. But you know what? We have something that you don't. And that's a moral standard. Something to stand by. I don't have it right. I don't have it perfect. But doggone it, I'm trying. I'm at least making the effort. I had the pleasure or maybe the lack of a pleasure, to visit Las Vegas this week. i got to go to a convention Monday through Wednesday. And that is a place that is absolutely not hypocritical. As soon as you get off the plane, they are trying to sell you one thing, and that is pleasure. Any kind you want, whether it's food, sex, gambling, booze, you name it, they are going to sell it to you as soon as you get off, and they will not be bashful about it. In fact, I had a friend of mine, as he gets into his cab to come to the hotel, uh, in the cab driver's uh, cab, it says, ask me about your free joint. I said, well, free joint? So he asked the guy, like, what on earth is this about? He goes, yeah, man, you want your free joint? He's like, well, is that legal? Yeah, in Vegas it is. It's, it's legal recreationally and medicinally. So the guy was getting ready to hand him a big old fatty. He declined it. Hey, I think he did. He told me he did. But... This is the place, right? As I open my hotel window, there's a sign right across the street that's advertising a show there on the strip that says, just enough wrong to be right. Like, they are not even bashful about it. They're putting it right there in your face. And yet, for us, we know internally, like, there is something not right about this. That this place is just, it's, there's an evil here. So I'm not talking about a hypocrisy that's brought up in Matthew 23, 13. As Jesus is addressing hypocrites there, he's calling out a specific type of hypocrite. He's talking to the Pharisees, and he's saying, woe to you hypocrites who try to keep people from the kingdom of heaven. As I look around this room, I know a lot of you. And I know that while we all have our flaws, that none of you want to keep people from the kingdom of heaven. That's not what we're talking about. You probably, as desperately as I do, want your friends and your family to come to salvation. What I'm talking about here is how we don't quite get it right. All of us are in that spot where we've got this moral standard. We want to live up to it, but we can't quite get there. I'm probably going to mess this thing up before I even get out of church today. I'm sure out of six kids, I'm going to yell at somebody. I'm going to try not to, but it's going to happen. But how then does the Bible record Rahab. What tells us here in Scripture, as near as I can tell, that Rahab was brave, she was an evangelist, and she took a stand for what she believed in. That's the stuff that God records. And something else I want to bring up about her and this story is, and I didn't put this on my notes, so I apologize, but he just gave it to me this morning, is that what do you think the spies were after in Jericho? you got these two young men, And they go to this city to spy things out. But it appears, based on the text, that almost immediately they're found out by the king and they're chased right out of town. So what did they really spy in the first place? And not only that, they were going to march around the city and blow a trumpet and the walls were going to fall in. Why do you need to go inside the city gates to see that if God's going to knock the walls down? 
Well, what I'll contend uh, with for you is that what the spies were after was Rahab. God sent those two young men in there to save her and her family and to give her an opportunity. Much like two angels were sent to Sodom to deliver Lot, the same thing happens for Rahab. That's how much God loved her. That's how much he loves you. He loves you enough to send two men into a city filled with sin just to deliver one woman, one faithful woman. He's not looking for a whole lot of faith. You can even have some hitches in your game. You can have some hypocrisy in your life. You can tell a big fat lie. I wouldn't encourage it. Don't try to do that, but it's going to happen, right? But the key to all this is that scarlet thread that we mentioned before. And that's the spot that Rahab found herself. And God, there on the sidelines with his fist pumping, you can see it, going, yeah, you're doing it, right? He's looking for anything he can to cheer us on. And that's the spot we want to be in as we go out today, the home of the brave. So, Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you, Father, for texts that are thousands of years old that we can glean from and we can learn from. Thank you for people like Rahab that certainly is not what she wanted to be, but, Lord, she wasn't what she was either. She's trying to make an effort. She's trying to make a change. And we see how you weave her in to the very genealogy of Christ just based on that. So, Lord, I'm so thankful for that and what that means in our lives as we try to do things. We're probably not going to get it right, Lord, but we have a moral standard. We know that that standard is found in your word. We thank you for that. I pray, Father, that uh, if there's anybody here that's on the fence trying to make a decision, Lord, maybe their life's been full of hypocrites. But, Lord, all of our lives have been full of hypocrites. So please uh, use this as a, a chance to convict to reprove, Lord, to make a change, to make a conversion from villainous to virtuous. So we pray all this today in Jesus' name.